uh, we're going to study St. Benedict and the monastic movement. Now, some people have said to me, why do you call these fellows saints? Well, they were saints, and so are you if you're in Jesus. So uh, 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 St. James is right down here on the second row, and uh, he's got an infirmary for those of you who know old music. Anyway, um, St. Benedict is also a, 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 a credit to him, and it's a recognition that within uh, the Catholic faith he, faith, he is recognized as well as, as a saint in the special meaning that's there. You know, it's, it's an interesting world in which we live. I've gone to Mardell's more times uh, uh, than I can count. It's a Christian bookstore over on 1960. And in, uh, it's a Christian store. It's beyond books. But I, I remember going through there one time and looking at the row after row of self-help books. Have you seen how many self-help books there are out there? It's amazing to me. And I wonder how many of those self-help books will still be being sold five years from now, 10 years, 25, 50, 75, 100? Do you th- how many of those books on that shelf do you think will still be in print 500 years from now? I don't think that many. How about 1,500 years from now? In the year 3,565. No, 515. I can't add. That's how far it is. And I, I, I don't know how many will still be there. Well, that's interesting to me because I wrote a book. Have I told you that lately? Look, if you think I'm bad, like, talking about this book... I got lots of law books out there, and I never bring those in, okay? Um, but, but this book, I got an alert this week that the book is now going to be published in Korean. Okay? I'm kind of stoked. So I just sent an email out to my wife and kids and, 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 and mom and said, Hey, and sisters, and all of you, and... Everything, anybody else on my chain? No, I'm joking. I, just a limited group. I said, hey, I just found this out. This is kind of cool news. Uh, 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 and, and my daughter-in-law, Nora, and my, who's married to our son, Will, uh, uh, they sent me an email back. And they're aware of the fact that, you know, I got to give a copy of the book to the Pope. So they wanted to know, would I be getting a copy to Kim Jong-un? And then my son got on Photoshop and managed <laughs> to, to, manage to put it together. <clears throat> so it's just a matter of time till North Korea is fully in the faith. Um, uh, I don't know that, that Kim Jong-un, but I, I digress. I tell you this because the rule of St. Benedict, a copy of which I have right here, is still being published 1,500 years after he wrote it. Now that's staying power. 1,500 years after he wrote this self-help book, you can buy it, you can read it, you can be helped. Especially if you live in a monastic community. But even if you don't, 1,500 years and going strong. To put it into context, I want to start with Van Gogh. Well, we'll use Van Gogh's painting. It's actually Jesus' parable of the sower. Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and he says, A sower went out to sow seed, and the seed goes into four different types of soil. Some of it goes in packed soil where the soil is so compacted the seed can't get in to take root. And the birds just come and they just peck the seeds up and the seeds are gone. Some of it goes into stony ground that's got a little bit of soil in it, just enough for it to bear root, but the roots cannot grow down to any depth. And the plants that spring up quickly, just as quickly, go away. Some of it goes into um, thorny ground. 
This is a ground with weeds and thorns and grass burrs and things like that. And it sprouts up, but it gets choked out by the weeds. And you don't really have the crop that the sower intended. And then some of the seed goes into good soil. And it takes root and it grows and it yields its crop a hundredfold. And that's the way it is with the gospel. In terms of the human reaction and the human heart. And hearing that parable or reading that parable should make us all be sensitive to wanting to be the type of people that are good soil so that the Word of God can take root in us and bear fruit. But not everybody's that way. And historically, we see that very true, which is what we're going to look at today. The church became very secularized with Constantine. Before Constantine, like Pastor David was talking about this morning, there were intense persecutions of the church. There were martyrs for the church in huge numbers. And that intense persecution and that martyrdom became the, the, a, a driving reason the church grew so much. That's the counterproductivity that Pastor David talked about. It was so counterproductive to think persecution would grow the church. Persecution should eliminate the church. That's the whole reason the church was being persecuted, is to eliminate it. But it did not eliminate the church. It grew the church because people were stunned at the witness of the believers. Then Constantine comes along and makes the church effect. Did I do that? Okay. Maybe I did. But I don't know how, so I'll try not to make my cheeks so wide. Constantine came along. And he took the church and he, in essence, made it the state. He made it the official religion. He took a pagan Roman empire and turned it into a Christian nation, to use our common terminology today. And that had its pros. And that had its cons. Pros. Well, for one, all people started getting rights. It really started opening up the rights of all people. Now, there was still uh, uh, classes. There were still slaves. It didn't make everybody a citizen. But there became an acute awareness that realistically, while there may be classes, that's more of an economically driven engine. It's not that some people are people and other people are animals. And so it, it started redefining people and the rights of people in a way that had not been experienced really anywhere else. A second thing that it did is it really changed the rights of women. A lot of uninformed people read the Gospels and they read Paul and they say, in fact, I can remember uh, uh, one of my friend's moms in particular in high school, going back to high school, I won't have anything to do with Paul. Why? I ask. She said, because he was a woman hater. I said, where'd you get that from? Hey, telling them how to dress. Telling them to keep quiet. He's a woman hater. That's a very uninformed view. If you look at the position of women at the time of the New Testament, Paul and Jesus were incredibly progressive. 
For Paul to say that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, he wasn't saying that out of just some verbosity. He's just wordy. He's just throwing in some extra things to make the letter longer. You know, we've got all this extra ink we're trying to get rid of. No, not at all. He says that because in society there was a difference. When Paul has to write that we have been adopted as sons, he writes that because women couldn't have the adoption rights that sons could. That was societal. Paul, in that same letter, says, but there's neither male nor female in Christ. There may be in the Roman Empire, but there's not in Christ. Women may not be able to hold property in the Roman Empire, but they are full members in Christ. Women may not have inheritance rights in the Roman Empire, but they have full inheritance rights in Jesus. Paul was a progressive, and the Christian church was progressive, and was the driving force in the secularization of the church in women's rights. Christianity drove the changes in slavery law and practice in the Roman Empire. Christians were being taught, even if slavery is legal in the Roman Empire, Christians have a responsibility to release their slaves and give them their freedom. It's a Christian responsibility. Paul wrote on behalf of of the slave Onesimus to Philemon. And Paul says, in essence, you need to release him. That's the Christian thing to do. He is your brother in Christ. Paul called himself the slave to others in Jesus. Uh, We've already discussed how it was Constantine who said Sunday is a holy day. And you're not to work on Sunday, except for certain jobs. You still got to milk your cows. There are certain jobs that are allowed, but by and large, Sunday is declared a holy day. Or as we've turned it now in English, a holiday. And that's what it was. The gladiator fights. Stopped man killing man because of the secularization of the church. Now they didn't totally get eliminated in terms of man killing animals. You can still see vestiges of that. That's, that's, that's the heritage of, of the bullfight is the Roman gladiator fights. They've never totally eliminated. But man killing man stopped because of the Christianization of the Roman Empire. What else do we have? Church property. The idea that the church not only can exist legally, but exist as an entity that can hold property. That was a Roman Empire change with Constantine that we still have today in Western civilization. This church is not owned by someone else and we rent the building. This church facility is owned by the incorporated church that is called Champion Forest Baptist Church. Not just church property, but it was the Christianization of the Roman Empire that caused the ban in polygamy. Now, you know, a lot of people say to me, because they think lawyers are supposed to know this stuff. Now, why exactly is polygamy wrong? They had it in the Old Testament. They had it in the New Testament. Well, we can fuss about that at another class. The, the ultimate reasoning for the church behind it is that the two become one flesh, not the six become five fleshes. So, so the, the two become one as the ideal way God made it, that Jesus reinforced. So the church quit practicing polygamy, did not practice polygamy, in the oldest roots of the church. And as the the culture became Christian, 
the polygamy ban was put in place. Not only that, homosexuality laws changed because of the, 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 the secularization of the church. As the, the Roman Empire became Christian, at the time Paul was writing, where Paul condemns homosexuality, homosexuality was rampant in the Roman world. It was approved in the Roman world. You could have a homosexual marriage in the Roman world. Paul was speaking out against his culture when he made the statements he did. The church shunned homosexuality as a practice. Now, what what I want us to, 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 to look at here is there is a difference between talking about someone's personal attractiveness to other people and how that is expressed. Sometimes we've got a problem in that we view homosexuality as such a horrible, rampant sin, and yet we turn around and treat fornication or even adultery, as long as it's heterosexual, as a different class sin. Those are all sexual sins that are enveloped in the Greek word porneo. We'll we'll talk about these words some when we get to our Greek class. But you can look at... Can we go to the Elmo for a moment? Look at uh, this word in the Greek. We've got the Greek P, pi. Okay. We've got the Greek O, which is O. The Greek R, which looks a little bit like our P, but it's an R. The Greek N looks like a V. And then it's got an ending on it, the E-O ending, porneo. Care to guess what word we get from that? It means sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in the Greek, as Paul uses it, envelops a whole lot of sexual sins. We go back to the power. Oh, you're already there. But the homosexuality laws themselves, homosexual marriage was made illegal by Constantine's son in 342 A.D. And then in 390 A.D., a later Christian emperor made homosexuality practice itself illegal. But all of that developed out of the secularization of the church. Clergy got tax breaks. There are still some tax benefits that clergy receive today. But clergy got tax breaks under the Roman Empire because they were serving God. Now, cons. What were the cons of secularization? Well, con number one. All of a sudden, you had a lot of professors, and I'm not talking college or university. I'm talking about people who profess with their mouths that they're Christians, but their hearts are far from the Lord. People who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, because it helps them in business, it helps them in society. I mean, hey... If you're clergy, you get tax breaks. Who doesn't want tax breaks? They had so many internet scams back in that day to get you your clergy license. I mean, there were internet seminaries cropping up all over the Roman Empire. People quit tithing. Because government was taking care of folks. People quit tithing because the government's giving property to the church. The church is becoming wealthy. The church doesn't need our money. They got plenty of money. And they're not using it for the good stuff anyway. By the way, we've seen an effect of that in America in almost a slightly different way. 
Ours has happened where it, as a result of the New Deal in the 30s, as government tried to figure out how do we take care of people in the midst of this horrid depression, and government puts in place programs of Medicare and Medicaid, puts in place programs of, of, of Social Security. And as a result, the church and the family basically abdicated its role in taking care of those in need. Because it's the government's job. So tithing was affected. As the government handouts increased, the church was deemed not to need as much. And then there was just diluted devotion. You know, yeah, this is bottles off, it's a joke off Diet Cola. (laughs) <laughs> no, nah, I don't either. Um, um, the, the whole idea of Christianity, when you can get persecuted, when you can get killed, when you can be jailed, the, it, it has a way of weeding out the folks who are semi-committed. But once that's gone and there's benefits to going to church on this earth, attendance can swell. I'll tell you, you want to see some, you can go to some churches where Christianity is so light, it's almost indistinguishable from a pep rally. And you'll get a lot of people there. And maybe that's a marvelous way to get them in the door. But let's hope and pray that we grow them to something more. So the secularization of the church had its pros and its cons. And in the midst of this comes the rise of monasticism. The monks and the nuns. And the monks and the nuns decide we're not going to be part of that fake culture. We're not going to be part of that artificial Christianity. None of this Christianity light for us. We're going to pull into a community, or as we looked at at St. Anthony of the Desert, we're going to go off and be hermits. And we're going to really just devote ourselves to the Lord. We're going to withdraw and focus in prayer in service and in study. And so you have this. And the rise of monasticism had its pros and it had its cons. The pros included devoted to prayer. That's a marvelous thing to be. You know, these were the the monks that for centuries we're copying scripture and other holy writings so that we've still got them today. These were the monks that, that, that found the, the scripture so important that they were constantly calling the church back to holiness. And they weren't simply living in their monasteries, but they were seeking to serve as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One of the cons was hey, we can go join a monastery and everything's taken care of for us. We don't have to work. Praying is just another word for sleeping. Eyes are closed. Who really knows? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And such became clear when the monastic movement really starts gathering numbers and almost becomes a sandals resort for men only. And then another con is, this opens up the door for some of the extremists, like Simeon the Stylite. Simeon the Stylite found a pillar, climbed it. Once a week, people would bring him food. And he sat on that pillar. If anybody came, he'd preach. But he just lived there the rest of his days. 
Now, that's got practical issues. I don't know how that fellow went to the bathroom. I don't know. That, that guy was, I respect his desire to serve the Lord, but he was a weird duck. There are others. There's this other fellow who went out and laid down in the midst of gnat beds so that he'd be bitten by gnats for weeks on end because he accidentally killed a gnat. Okay, that's out there. So in the midst of all of this extremism comes St. Benedict. And Benedict is a monk. He starts a monk movement that is still here today, the Order of Benedictines. And Benedict comes in and says, this isn't happening. They put him in charge of a monastery and he brings in the rules, man. I mean, major heavy-duty rules. The rules so intense that the other monks say, who made you the leader of us? He said, you did. Well, we don't want you to be anymore. Tough. Grow up. Live by the rules. So they try to poison him. The monks are going to kill their head leader. And but for the fact that his glass breaks at lunch, he might have died. By the way, he did at that point leave that monastic community. Someone said, well, why did you do that? Don't you have enough faith? God would spare your life and protect you there. And he says, well, he could spare my life and protect me there and I could help these 12 guys that are in the community trying to kill me. Or I could go over to this community and help 200 who don't want to kill me. It's a good move. So here comes St. Benedict into all of these troubles. Together your sins are too intense And it's time to change the weather We'll just work and pray tonight So stick around You're gonna have to change your lives Or head back to town Say, champion force Have you seen this fun? Oh, but they're trying hard Look the penny and the monks Oh, but the weird and the wonderful Our Betty's really changed He's got fantastic roots From out to boot You know I learned it in my life Ruth Cito With the Betty and the monks It's right on my computer, and so I apologize for the timing, but you get the idea. Thank you, Phil Keggy, for that. Um, so, in comes Benny to deal with the monks. And, and Benny comes in, and he writes a holy rule. You'll see in this icon of him, it doesn't say holy Bible. It says holy rule. That is what you still buy today, the rule of St. Benedict. And he set down the law. For, and Benedictine communities are supposed to still live by that today. So we've got that 1,500 years and going strong. And what I'd like to do now is pause for a moment and let's just read some together. So we'll go to the Elmo. First of all, chapter 1. The different kinds of monks and their customs. There are four kinds of monks. 
First you have the Cenobites. That's not Cenobites. Not even related. This comes from the Greek word koinos, which means common, and bios, which means life, like biology, Janet Seifert. So, four kinds of monks, those who live in common, Cenobites, who live in a monastery, waging their war under a rule and an abbot. Second, you've got the anchorites. These are hermits. They basically live by themselves. They're in single combat, hand-to-hand against Satan. Third, there are the Cerebites. These are the worst kind. They're unschooled by any rule. They're untested, like gold is by fire. Gold is tested. They're untested. They're soft as lead. They're living in and of the world. They're openly lying to God through their shaved heads. They live together in twos or threes, more often alone, without a shepherd in their own fold. They don't belong to the Lord. Their only law is the pleasure of their desires. And whatever they wish or choose, they call holy. They consider whatever they dislike unlawful. Fourth, the giratory months. They live and wander in different countries, staying in various monasteries three or four days at a time. They're restless servants to the seduction of their own will and appetites. They're even worse than the Cerebites. And it's better to be silent as to their wretched lifestyle than to speak. So, casting these aside, let us, with God's help, establish a rule for people who want to live in common. They're the best kind of monks. And these are the rules for people who want to live in common. Now, if we go to chapter 4 of the rule book, these are the instruments of good work. This is stuff a good monk should be doing. And I looked at this, and I asked myself about it, and I'd like you to ask yourself about it too. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and strength. How many of you are in on that one? Okay, we got about half of you. (laughs) No, every hand went up. That's good. That's straight from Jesus, straight from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor as oneself. That's the second commandment. I'm in. I'm thinking I could be a monk. Number three, not to kill. As long as he's not talking about mosquitoes and roaches. I'm in. He's talking about people. He's using the the word, the Latin word for murder. Don't murder someone else. Okay, I got that. That's the Ten Commandment. Number four, not to commit adultery. All right, I'm in. That's that's the commitment I made to my wife before the Lord. Number five, not to steal. This isn't looking too tough yet, is it? You in so far? You got the top five? Bunch of Benedictines. Number six, be above it. Don't covet. I had to make it rhyme. Don't covet. We're still in the thick of the Ten Commandments. I got that one too. Not to bear false witness. That's another one of the ten. What else we got? Respect all men. Now that's a little harder because of some of the men I've met. But I'm going to work on it. That's an admirable goal. To To do that, I'm going to have to see those men as the Lord sees them. Sometimes i got to look at them with the potential they have. I may not respect the way they're wasting that potential. Uh, many of y'all uh, went to the ball game Friday night, uh, the Houston Astros. I know because I saw many of you there. And, and uh, Becky and I went with uh, Lewis and, and Michelle, uh, our neighbors and, and partners here and, and everything else, good friends. And Lewis and I... We're picking up Becky and Michelle from the ballpark because uh, Becky and Michelle wanted to stay longer than we did. And no, 
uh, we'd gone to get the car and brought it. And, and when we got the car, there was a street fella in front of us. Now, this street fella was dressed in rags, looked like he hadn't showered or shaved in a year, didn't walk well, didn't have, obviously, anything. And Lewis said to me, how does someone get there? How does someone get to that point? And I thought about it in terms of not only that, but how do we respect all men? And I can't respect the life he's living in the sense that I give honor to it. He may be stuck there. I'm not throwing rocks at him. I don't know his story. Heaven forbid I judge him. But I can tell you that I can still look upon him as Jesus does. Even in the midst of all of the wasted potential of a life. And think, God loves that man's soul. And I want to as well. And that's that's respect. Number nine. Don't do to another one what you wouldn't have done to yourself. That's just the golden rule. I got the golden rule. Number 10. Ooh. Now, as my daddy would say, he just quit preaching and he went to meddling. To deny oneself in order to follow Christ. Well, that makes me a little uncomfortable. And yet, at the same time, I memorized the verse where Jesus said, If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I do know that I memorized that verse in high school for a mission trip. But I've tried not to think about it a lot since then. That's a tough one. That's one of those where people say, hey, what is it that you're investing in in your own life that you could pull back from and instead invest in someone else's life? I tell you what, though, knowing that verse is in there will cause you to get up at 4.30 in the morning to finish work on your PowerPoint before you come to Sunday school. So I guess I'm in. Number 11, to chastise the body? What? To chastise the body? 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I only brought my electronic Bible. So I don't have another uh, one to put up here. Who's got a Bible nearby? 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Thank you very much. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Get a warm up here at verse 24. Don't you know that all the runners in the stadium run, but only one gets the prize, so run to win. Everyone who competes practices self-discipline in everything. The runners do this to get a crown of leaves that shrivel up and die. But we do it to receive a crown that never dies. So now, this is how I run. Not without a clear goal in sight. I fight like a boxer in the ring. Not like someone who's shadow boxing. Rather, I'm landing punches on my own body and subduing it like a slave. Subduing it like a slave. I do this to be sure I myself won't be disqualified after preaching to others. Now, I do not see the benefit of taking a belt and clobbering myself till whelps come up on my back. I got to tell you, I think that's wacky. 
And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. And if it was, I don't understand it. But there are ways I still need to discipline my body. Instead of letting my body run my life. There are times I need to say no to eating. There are times I need to say yes to eating the right things. I tell you what, I might be willing to take a belt on the back if it meant I could eat a dozen hot glazed Shipley donuts and feel no ill after effects. You know, we've got to understand that, that you know, Larry Burgess and I have this ongoing email um, exchange about what it means to, to have the old man and the old nature. And I want to tell you part of that is while there is a new man inside of me, he has not yet worked himself out through my body. This is still a fallen body. This is not what I inherit eternity with. Praise the Lord. And there are times I need to remind myself that my body is not the boss of me. What else we got in here? I'm not, I'm not giving that a check. I'm kind of putting that like one of them squiggly things like, eh, maybe in the right day, in the right context. Not to love pleasure. Okay, well now we got to parse some words here. I'll take joy in the things of the Lord as the Lord would have me. And if the Lord gives me something joyful, I'm going to take joy in it. But never love it absent the context in which it should be loved. To love fasting. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh-huh. To comfort the poor. I'll tell you what. Let's go back to fasting. It is a spiritual discipline. The Lord said that his children would fast after the bride and groom had left while waiting his return. So I say we give it a go. And I've done it in stages in my life. Now, if you're going to fast, let me give you some, some hints, some pointers. A, fast for a meal. Fasting doesn't have to be this, gee, I'm not going to eat on Friday thing. Fast for a meal. Say, I'm not going to eat lunch today. Instead, I'm going to spend that time in prayer. Or that time in service. Or I'm going to take the money I would have used for lunch and I'm going to go buy a lunch and give it to that street fellow and tell him Jesus loves him. Or if you want to do the day fast, I strongly recommend you do it the Jewish way. The Jewish day starts at sunset. So eat an evening meal and finish before the sun sets. And then you don't eat again until the sun sets the next day. So you have a late dinner. What that really means is you skipped breakfast and lunch. But you got in a whole day of fasting. None of that's of any use in terms of making you a better or a holier person. Jesus is even careful. He says, when you're doing it, don't do it like everyone else is saying. I know I probably am a little low on energy. I'm fasting for the Lord. It's part of my holy walk. No, that's not the key. Do it privately. Don't tell anybody. Except the Lord. And just do it to see what God does in your life. It's, it may prove to be real interesting. Comfort the poor. I could go on and on. There's a whole list of these. Um, I mean, they just keep going. And then if you really want to get good, you can get to some of the other chapters. Like the chapter on silence. I don't really like that. It's not much to talk about. The chapter about how many times you say the Psalms during the day. Interesting. Or one of my favorite, how the monks are to sleep. This is how practical this guy is. Look, all the monks shall sleep in separate beds. That's a relief. All get bedding allotted by the abbot appropriate to their environment. That means, uh, I guess, that side sleepers get those new pillows for sleeping on your side. If possible, they should all sleep in one room. I don't care for that. However, if there are too many for this, they'll be in groups of tens or twenties. 
a senior in charge of each group, let a candle burn throughout the night. Look at this. They will sleep in their robes, belted, but with no knives, thus preventing injury and slumber. He's a practical guy. And while we do not live by the Benedictine rules in our house, this is one Becky and I both subscribe to. Neither of us sleep with knives. The monks then will always be prepared to rise at the signal and hurry to the divine office. Read that as morning worship. But they must make haste with gravity and modesty. Now, look at this. The younger brothers should not be next to each other. Rather, their beds should be interspersed with those of their elders. When they arise for the divine office, they ought to encourage each other. For the sleepy make many excuses. They would frequently be getting up at three in the morning to go say their prayers. And they just recognize you don't put a bunch of new guys all in one. Hey, I'm, I'm praying in bed. God has told me not to move. It's a fascinating thing. So this effect that Benedict has is massive. And uh, I just happen to know that because of my musical background. Now, some of you, how many of you watched TV in the 60s? Good. Those of you who didn't, you won't get this. Just hang on. Here we come. We're a little off Okay, this is mistake. We're going back. We're, not, we're going back. we got to get the timing right on this. We're going to try it again. Let's see if it works. It's not your fault, Mike. It's Here we come. We're a little off We get the funniest looks from... Everyone we meet Hey, hey, we're the monkey The people say we monkey around But we're too busy praying To put anybody down We try to live like the Lord did Break from society But we've got our own problems It's not so easy to be Hey, hey, we're the monkey Special thanks to Phil Keggy. And, and um, by the way, live like Jesus does not mean break from society. I, don't, I saw that up there and I thought, well, that might get misunderstood. Jesus did have times where he broke from society. He went out in the wilderness. He'd go off by himself in prayer and solitude and meditation. That's a very important part of his life. But then he'd re-engage society. It's like Pastor David said this morning, we need to re-engage and, and, and be who we are and be God's light. So with that, here are our points for home. Um, maybe. Yeah, there we go. Here are our points for home. Boom. Got it. Ah. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Anytime we spend time talking about these types of works and talking about holiness, we need to always keep it in perspective. We need to always remember that's not how we get saved. God doesn't save us because we're extra good. God doesn't save us because we're extra holy. God saves us because he died for us. And when we trust him with that, he makes us his. The holiness is the response that we have. It's how we live afterwards. It's what we're empowered to do once he's broken those chains of sin and death through his Holy Spirit applying the resurrection of Jesus. So let's don't forget this. We're not talking about how we get saved. We're talking about how we live. But having said that, remember what Paul told the Galatians. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature 
from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let's not become weary in doing good, if for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. And, and that's what we're called to do, and that's what we're called to be. This is an, an amazing concept. A man reaps what he sows. It's, it's a fact. It's a fact. So I'm going to take holiness seriously. I really want to try and be holy in my life. I want to live to God. I want to live to His Spirit. And I want to weed out the junk. And I want to be more focused. I'd rather take an hour that I could spend in pleasurable pursuits that have no fruit at all. I'd rather spend that hour in prayerful devotion. Praying for my kids, if nothing else. Praying for my 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 family in Christ, if nothing else. Last. Those of you who are memorizing 1 John would be able to say this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. 1 John 2.15 There's an old song that we used to sing in church. How shall the young secure their heart and keep their lives from sin? Thy word, the perfect rules impart to keep the conscience clean. I really want, I really want to secure my heart in the Lord. And one of the best ways to do that is to stay in his word, love the things of God and not the things of the world. And so uh, that, that's something I'm going to work on. And, and I got to tell you, I write these points for home for me. I'm just sharing them with you. These are the things I want to work on. This is how I want to be different. This is how I want my life to change. This is one reason I love to teach this class. I get to write three points for home for me each week and force myself to focus on these things because this is where we need to be. So can I pray over you, please? And um, we don't have class next Sunday. God willing, I'll see you in two weeks. Lord, thank you so much for my friends, for my family in Christ and, and, and by blood. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your devotion. Thank you that we can have some fun in you. That this is not a humorless life you've given us. It's not a pleasureless life, Lord. Help us to understand the place for those things as gifts from you to be enjoyed, but always in perspective, Lord, with your priorities. Guide us in our holy walk. Make us what we can be for you. In Jesus' name.